Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honour your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, We have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. For about the last four months, um, I've had a really crooked shoulder and I've been on anti-inflammatories. Have you noticed that the sermons haven't been quite so inflammatory in that time? I'm actually thinking maybe I should have taken a double dose today because there's some pretty hard-hitting stuff today. I reckon if by the time we finish today's message, if you're not just a little bit offended and if I'm not feeling somewhat hypocritical, then I've totally failed to adequately portray the gravity of what Jesus has said. Jesus had some really tough things to say to all sorts of people and today he's got some really tough things to say to those who are rich. Um, Now but before I begin I, I sort of suspect that I might have to dispel a myth or two that some of us may believe because some of you may have just sighed breathe a sigh of relief when I said Jesus had some really tough things to say to those who are rich. You're probably going, oh, thank goodness he's not going to be talking to me today. Um, But, oh, but so-and-so down the aisle, oh, they're going to be squirming in their seat because they are rich. So I thought we might just dispel the myth about who is and who isn't rich. Now, conveniently, there's a very simple test we can do. So if you've got a watch on today, I want you to just have a look at your watch and see... None of you got a watch on. Right, have a bit of a look at your watch and see if you can get the glass of your watch to reflect your face in it. 
right? If you've got a dished glass, you might have trouble, but some of you might be able to get it to reflect your face. Now, if you can, the person who you can actually see in that watch is rich, right? But if you don't have a watch or you might be a bit more techno-savvy, you might have a phone, right? If you've got a phone in your pocket, pull your phone out of your pocket or your handbag. Now, some of you didn't look at either your watch or your phone. What's going on there? But your phone, it'll do the same thing. You might be able to get a reflection or if you're really techno-savvy, you might know how to get the camera to actually get a photo of your face and you can actually look at that on the screen and it'll be even brighter and everything. And what you have to realise is the person that you are looking at is rich. Now, but you might say to me, but hang on a minute, Michael. I don't have any money at all. How could I possibly be rich? But see, the thing is, the reason you don't have any money is because you've already spent the money that you had. And you're not really worried about it because you are so rich that you know that probably within the next couple of weeks, some more money is just going to arrive in your bank account before you've been without food for a week. Or you might be somebody who's thinking at the moment, yeah, people think that I'm rich. They can see the amount of land I have or, or the, the house that I live in or the cars that I drive and, and they think, they assume that I'm rich. But they have no idea what kind of debt load I'm carrying. But the thing is, the only reason that any of us can carry debt is because we are so rich that the bank knows that we're going to be able to pay it back. You see, a lot of us believe the myth that I'm not rich. But you know what, depending on which international scale we use, we Australians have an extremely high standard of living. Um, we usually rank somewhere in about the top five countries, usually somewhere around about number three or number four in the world for standard of living. Uh, by the way, I fear that we're sending our country broke by trying to maintain that. Um, our, by world standards, our standard of living is absolutely exceptional. The trouble is, as we get more and more, and as we attain a higher and higher standard of living, we expect more and more. And what we do is we tend to compare ourselves to those who have more than us, don't we? You know, it's like, you know, compared to Clive Palmer, I'm poor or compared to uh, Bill Gates, I'm poor, or you know, pick, pick your wealthy person. Um, the, the ones we always compare ourselves to are those who are super rich. But why, don't we, why do we think that so many people risk their lives to try and get to Australia to live? Why do people hop in a rust bucket, piloted by people who they don't know, in an out overcrowded boat and try to get to Australia. I mean, we get told that, that they're fleeing countries where, where it's dangerous for them. Well, yes, they are, but there's plenty of countries that they can get to a lot easier than Australia. Why do they particularly want to get to Australia? It's because here in Australia, we are so rich that even an unemployed person or a person on disability pension is far, far richer than people in the, the majority of people in the world. Robin and I are rich. When's the last time you had your pastor tell you that, that he's rich, right? 
We are rich. We are so rich, we keep a room in our house. Actually, since November, it's become two rooms. We keep two rooms in our house that nobody lives in, and we keep them there just in case some visitors happen to stop by. Now, by the way, we've got visitors in both those rooms at the moment. Welcome, Jim and Janet and Andrew. It, and it's good to have people there. But we are so rich. We have rooms that nobody lives in. We are so rich. We spend as much money feeding our dog as what some people can afford to spend feeding their kids. In fact, we are so rich, some weeks... We don't even work. In, in February, Robin and I, we went away for two weeks and for two whole weeks, we didn't work. And in those two weeks, even though we didn't work, we still got paid. We are so rich. We are so rich that in our home, we have a machine that when it starts to get uncomfortably hot and I start to sweat, we turn that machine on and it cools the temperature of the house down and, and it makes me comfortable again and I stop sweating. We are that rich. So let's dispel the myth. By world standards and certainly by historical standards, we are the rich. Our standard of living is far higher than probably what even the very richest person had in Jesus' day. So, we've dispelled that myth, hopefully. Now let's begin in prayer. Heavenly Father, our prayer for today is that you would soften our hearts. Lord, give to us your wisdom that we would see things as you see them. And Lord, as we study your word today, instill into us the eternal values of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Righto. So Jesus has been travelling toward Jerusalem. He's got an appointment with a cross. He started off right up in the north of Israel and he's come down to Capernaum and now he's travelled down into the region of Judea and he's gone beyond the Jordan. We don't know what town he's in, but he's just about to leave that town on, on the next leg of his journey. And this bloke comes running up to him. Uh, in the Gospel of Luke, we're told that he's a young man. Mark doesn't tell us that. In the Gospel of Mark, we're told that he's a ruler. Mark doesn't tell us that either. Mark just tells us he's this bloke. And he comes running up. And he, to, to catch Jesus. We don't know why he's running to catch Jesus. We don't know if he's just arrived from another town to try and urgently catch him before he moves on or whether he's been putting it off and, and finally been convicted, I've got to catch this fellow before he goes. Don't know why. But Jesus comes up to him. Oh, sorry, this man comes up to Jesus and could teach her, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. Right? The Gospel of Mark, the whole of the Gospel of Mark, is all about revealing who Jesus is. Now, if we don't grasp this, we're going to miss some real pearls in, in, in Mark. But when we realise that the Gospel of Mark is all about Jesus revealing who it is, we pick up these little pearls. Right? So right at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, we've got something like an executive summary. We're told that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of God. And then right throughout the Gospel of Mark, we keep getting these little pearls dropped in, which, which form a string of pearls, if you like, that reveal who Jesus really is. This man recognises there is something extraordinary about Jesus. He recognises Jesus' inherent goodness. And for some reason, he assumes that Jesus knows the way to eternal life. Now, that's a pretty big assumption. We wouldn't just go up to any old stranger and assume that they knew the way to eternal life. But with Jesus' answer, he doesn't try and downplay any of this. He doesn't say, oh, no, don't call me good because it's only God who's good. He doesn't do that. He doesn't try and downplay his goodness. But what he, with his answer, he crystallises what his goodness reveals about who he truly is. You're calling me good. No one is good except for God alone. Right? And there's the pearl right there. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is good. No one is good except for God alone. Therefore, Jesus is God. So next time the Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door and they try and tell you, well, the word Trinity isn't in the Bible, isn't in the Bible. Well, first of all, don't be surprised by that. They're right. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. But we get pictures of the Trinity revealed right throughout the scriptures. And this is one of them. God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the three and yet one. And here we have Jesus, the Son, and yet he's God. So take them to Mark chapter 10, verse 18, and, and show to them how the absolute goodness of Jesus reveals the divinity of Jesus. But then Jesus answered the question that the man wanted to know. He'd asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right, so eternal life is the inheritance. That's the prize he's after. What have I got to do to get it? And Jesus said, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud and do honour your father and mother. Right? He didn't spend all day quoting all of the commandments. I think he got the idea, didn't he? Right? He just quoted a few of them, mostly from the Ten Commandments. And the ones that he quoted are ones that can actually be demonstrated. We can actually see these things being demonstrated. There's other commandments which you can't really, you know, you can't really demonstrate them. You could fake them to people in the world. But these ones must be demonstrated. And Jesus' answer probably brightened this bloke's day a bit, at least momentarily. Oh, teacher, I've kept all those commandments since I was a young fella. And then we're told, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, I want to make sure that today we, we don't try and vilify this bloke. He wasn't a villain. But by most standards, it seems he was actually a very good man. He, he tried really hard to keep the commandments. And in fact, from his youth, he had kept them. Did you notice that, that Jesus didn't correct him? Did you notice that Jesus didn't say, well, you're a bit of a hypocrite, aren't you? 
I mean, Jesus was never backwards in coming forwards when it came to that. He often called the teachers of the law hypocrites. Did you notice that Jesus didn't say to him, well, actually, you did break that command and you did break that command and you didn't do this and you did do that. Jesus didn't do any of that. This man had tried his best to live a godly life. He had tried his best to do the right thing. And Jesus actually loved that about him. There's a very disturbing teaching that gets presented sometimes today. Um, I've heard it said that we have to repent of our goodness, that we have to repent of good deeds. And sometimes these people misquote Isaiah chapter 64 and tell us that good deeds are like filthy rags and there's something we have to repent of. What a load of rot. And I use the word rot in the true sense of the word there is something truly rotten in the church when we get told that we have to turn away from doing good deeds. Jesus saw the good deeds of this man and he loved it. He loved him for it. Right throughout the scriptures, God never, ever condemns somebody for doing the right thing. He never condemns somebody for doing righteous deeds. And we're certainly never told to repent of righteous deeds. God loves it when we do the right thing. He loves it when we do good deeds. He even loves it when people of the world do the right thing. You see, it's not good deeds that we need to repent of. It's sin that we need to repent of. It's not the good that we do it's the good we failed to do and it's the bad that we do that we need to repent of. Jesus loved this man but he also saw that he lacked something. Jesus could see right beyond his external demonstrations of righteousness and right into his heart. In a few weeks' time, we're going to get to Mark chapter 12. And in Mark chapter 12, we're going to learn that all of the law and the prophets can be boiled down into two simple statements. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength. And love your neighbour as yourself. And this man failed on both those counts. Verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. You see, he didn't love the Lord with all of his heart. He loved his wealth more. And he didn't love his neighbour as he loved himself, otherwise he wouldn't have had as much as what he had. He would be sharing with those who were around him. Verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. That's rather sobering, isn't it? 
we've just dispelled the myth that we don't have wealth. We do have wealth. And now we're reading it's difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. But it gets worse. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Whoa. I promised you I'd, I'd offend you, didn't I? Over the last few weeks, I've introduced some of you to a new word, hyperbole. Right? Jesus uses a fair bit of hyperbole in this section of Mark. And now for those who weren't here those, for those few couple of weeks where we talked about this, I'll give you the same definition as what I did last time. Hyperbole is an over-the-top statement that's given to make a point. It's not usually meant to be taken literally. So, for instance, we might say, oh, that bag weighs a tonne. Well, it, that port might be very heavy, but no, it, it doesn't actually weigh a tonne. Or we might say, yesterday was the worst day ever. Well, yesterday might have been a very bad day for you but it's unlikely that it's the worst day that you're ever going to have. Or we might say, oh, I cannot live without him. Well, actually, yes, you can. You, you might miss him dreadfully when he goes away for a few days, but you're not going to die because he's gone away. Right? So that's just a few examples of hyperbole. But when Jesus uses hyperbole, it's generally a little bit different. Yes, it is an over-the-top statement given to make a point. And no, it's not usually meant to be taken literally. But when Jesus uses hyperbole, it is actually true. So, Jesus said how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That is an over-the-top statement, right? So he's just named the largest beast of burden that they had in their, in their society, a camel, a big animal. And then he's just named the smallest aperture, the smallest, tiniest little hole, the eye of a needle. And he said that it's easier for that great big camel to go through that tiny little aperture, that tiny little eye of a needle, than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That is an over-the-top statement. It's given to make a point. What's the point? The point is it's really hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Well, actually, no, it's impossible. It is impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That is truly offensive. For me, now, speaking as a rich person, I find that offensive. And ever since Jesus said it, and right through the ages, people have been truly offended by this. And so preachers often try and tone it down a bit. I remember when I was growing up with a kid, one of our ministers told us once that, well, actually, there's a gate in the wall of Jerusalem, and that gate is so small, it actually was known as the eye of a needle. And a camel couldn't fit through. But 
if you got your camel and you took all of its baggage off of it and you got your camel to drop to its knees, it could actually just shuffle through that gate. Has anyone ever heard that teaching? A few of you have. Right, if you've ever heard it before, forget it immediately. There is no archaeological evidence that any gate was ever called the eye of a needle. See, what that is doing is it's trying to take something which is impossible and just make it sound difficult, right? When the whole point of Jesus' illustration is it is impossible. It is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed by this. You see, in their culture, there was a bit of the prosperity theology thing happening there too. You know, like those who are rich must be rich for a reason. Like they're rich because God's blessing them. Why would God bless somebody who's not going to get to heaven? Right? That's sort of the way the logic goes. But the whole point of Jesus' illustration is it is impossible. He said, the first will be last, and the last will be first. The point is, it's impossible. And then Jesus said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Right? So Jesus makes an over-the-top statement to make a point. But what he says is actually true. It is actually true that it's harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God than what it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. But you know what? God can do that. God actually can put a camel through the eye of a needle. And God actually can take a rich person and give them entry into the kingdom of God. Now, this is where we rich folk have to become very careful because God has told us it's impossible except with a miracle of God, we know that it is possible. And we love miracles, don't we? We want to be that miracle. I want to be that rich person that enters the kingdom of God. But this is where we have to be very careful because we walk a very interesting line. How are we different from anybody else? Isn't it only by the sheer grace of God and by a sheer miracle of God that anyone is saved? Yeah, that's right. With man, it's actually impossible for anyone to be saved. With man it's actually impossible for a poor person to be saved. It's only by a miracle of God that anyone is saved. And so when we rich people think about that, it's like, oh, whew, thank goodness he's not talking to us afterwards. No, he is still talking to us. And so the challenge for us rich folk is for us not to discount the gravity of what Jesus is saying here. The line we need to walk at this point is to understand the seriousness of the situation. Jesus is using hyperbole for a reason. 
is to drive home a very important point. It's like Jesus is grabbing us by the shoulders and shaking us by the shoulders and saying, hey, I am shocking you with this statement because I want you to know just how critical this is. I need you to grasp just how dangerous the lure of wealth is. What you do with what you have has eternal consequences. It's about eternal rewards and it's even about our very place in eternity. Jesus said to this man, there's one thing you lack. But then he told him three things he needed to do. Sell all you have, give to the poor, come follow me. Right? So he lacked one thing and then gave him three things to do to fix it. So did he lack one thing or did he lack three things? And what was the one thing he lacked? Well, I think what he was lacking was an eternal perspective. His worldly perspective was causing him to try and serve two masters. The worldly perspective caused him to value his wealth more than he should. He had a lot of it and he didn't want to give it up. Jesus could see right into his heart and he knew what he lacked. The remedy for him was to sell it up, give to the poor, and then you'll have treasure of eternal value. So, so he lacked this eternal perspective. But the pattern that Jesus gave him was the pattern of becoming a disciple of Jesus. Repent and follow. Right? He, he already... He already had some level of belief in Jesus. He already came to Jesus. He knew that he was the one, that Jesus was the one who was good. He knew that Jesus was the one who could answer his question about how could he get eternal life. But he needed to repent and follow. All of his good works, all of his keeping of the law, no matter how good they were, weren't enough to save him. This man needed a saviour. And that's a story for all of us. Yeah, God loves it when we do the right thing. Yeah, God loves it when we, when we keep his commandments. But that's not enough. None of us can be good enough to be saved. We all need a saviour. And so he made the first step. He came to Jesus but then Jesus told him what discipleship was going to look like for him. See, Jesus actually called him as his disciple. And as when Jesus called his other disciples, and as when Jesus calls us to be his disciples, he had to leave something behind. To become a disciple of Jesus requires repentance. Repentance is a change of mind, it's a change of direction, it's a change of actions. So when Jesus called the fishermen, they immediately left their nets and they left their boats and they left their homes and followed Jesus. When Jesus called Matthew, he left his tax booth and followed Jesus. When Jesus calls us, 
There's always something we need to leave behind. We need to leave behind whatever is preventing us from following Jesus with our whole hearts. Now, the thing is, that was a word for that particular rich man. Does everybody have to sell up everything they have and give to the poor before they can follow Jesus? No. The fishermen, yeah, they left their boats and their nets, but they didn't sell them up and give them to the poor. Remember when Jesus was, after Jesus was crucified, that's where they went back. They went back to fishing. They went back to their boats. They went back to their nets. Peter didn't sell up his house because later on we hear about Peter. That's where Peter's mother-in-law was healed, was there at Peter's house. Nor did Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They didn't give up their house. So why did that particular rich man, why did he get told that he had to sell up everything? Well, I think it's pretty evident in his response. He couldn't. So that was something he couldn't give up. Jesus knew in his heart that he was trying to serve two masters. And his possessions were a greater master than what Jesus was. When the rich man had to choose between his possessions and Jesus, he chose his possessions. See, what this is all boiling down to is a love of money and love of stuff versus the love of God and love of others. This is a real litmus test, isn't it? If Jesus said to me, sell up, Michael, I want you to sell up everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me with nothing in your pocket, would I do that? Or would that be the deal breaker for me? What about if Jesus said that to you? I want you to sell up everything you have. Give it to the poor and come follow me. If you knew Jesus was saying that to you, would you do it? Or would that be the deal breaker? Now, for, for a poor person, that's not a, not a very big ask. But for a rich person, that is an enormous ask. It's not just a decision we make just for ourselves. It's intergenerational. It'll affect our children too. To be a disciple of Jesus means Jesus has to come first. Jesus has to come before my bank account, before a share portfolio. He has to come before our careers. He has to come before our work, our business, our farm, our sporting commitments. He has to come before anything. Jesus even has to come before our family. Now, if to follow Jesus meant that you had to give up any of those things, would that be a deal breaker for you? A few weeks ago, um, when Jesus, when we first started talking about hyperbole and the way Jesus used it was when he said, 
You know, if, if your right hand is what causes you to sin, cut it off. You're better off to enter the kingdom of God with, with only one hand than to go to hell with two. And of course, that, the message of that is sin is so serious. The, the eternal consequences are so serious, we need to cut off the source of temptation. Cut off whatever it is that causes us to fall into sin. And this is, it now is a very practical example of how Jesus is applying this to the rich man. You see, that was his cause, that was his temptation. And it would be better for him to cut off that temptation, to sell up everything he had and give it away, because that is what was stopping him from following Jesus. And you know what? The more desperately we try to convince ourselves that, hey, I'm not like the rich man. I actually don't need to give up everything. Um, and the more desperately I try to justify my wealth, the more I'm exactly like a rich man. If we truly have an eternal perspective, we will hold our wealth loosely. I know some people have the mantra, blessed to be a blessing. Um, in practice, I think that's often code for, well, I know God's made me wealthy. I know that I have a lot and I give some of it away. You know, often it's those who have the least who give the most. And very rarely does a rich person give more than their excess. Very rarely does a rich person give sacrificially, give in such a way that it's, it actually takes their balance sheet backwards. Peter said, look, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. And they had. They didn't sell everything up and give it away. They just left it behind. You see, for them, it wasn't that important. What they had wasn't controlling them. They just left it and followed Jesus. And next week, we're going to talk more about the blessing that it is to leave everything behind to follow Jesus. We're going to talk more about what the, ble the blessing that it is to, to live with an eternal perspective. And, and those blessings come in this life and they come in the life to come. But next week, we're also going to talk about the cost of following Jesus. We're going to talk about persecutions. We're going to talk about the physical cost and the personal cost. But what's the lesson for today? What can we take home from today? You see, there's a real danger for us now. We either go, well, yeah, I know what you're saying, Michael, but that's just too hard. And we leave, we leave here unchanged. We just go, well, that's a hard saying, Jesus. And it's just like water off a duck's back. All we can leave here is changed people. What's the lesson for today? Love God and love others. And love them with everything you have. 
You know, the, the world tells us to set goals, tells us to set financial goals, set succession goals. And this is a big one for us living out here in the bush where, you know, we want to be able to grow our farm so that we can pass pieces it off onto our, other ch- onto our children. The world tells us to set career goals. The world tells us, you know, you've got to plan for retirement. You've got to get your superannuation goals and, and retirement goals happening. And we've been having that drummed into us for our whole life. I remember I was a student at Ag College when people from the insurance industry came and introduced us to this thing called superannuation. And they told us at that stage, you'd need the equivalent of of a million dollars in today's money, which was 30 years ago, right? A million dollars back then, to, to be able to retire. And you've got to start planning for this now. We've been having this drummed into us for our whole lives. But you know what? Jesus wasn't joking around when he said this. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That is a truly shocking statement. And it's shocking for a reason. Are we seriously going to try and convince ourselves if that's okay I'm the exception when Jesus said many who are first will be last and the last will be first as tempting as it is and this is very tempting for a Bible teacher to water this stuff down. As tempting as it is as a Bible teacher who is answerable to Jesus, I must not remove the offence of his words. This is something Jesus wants you to grapple with in your life. The way of being a disciple of Jesus is very different to the way of the world. The priorities of your peers will be very different to your priorities. See, we don't need to be rich by world standards. We don't need to be. Certainly don't need to be rich by Australian standards. Let's be generous. As disciples of Jesus, let's always be generous. And let's always be sacrificial in the way we give. Our love for Jesus is evidenced by what we treasure most. So we're going to continue on with this next week. That's, that's the hard-hitting part, right? Next week's not going to be so hard-hitting. <laughs> We're going to continue on next week. Um, but if anyone wants to ask any questions now, I will take questions, but I'll just let you know if that's coming next week. And yeah, Any questions? So as I write in the introduction, it's pretty sobering stuff and confronting stuff. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus Christ, I don't think it's any surprise to you that we're challenged by your words today. Those are very confronting words and very sobering words. Lord, help us to not just shut them out. Help us to not just ignore them. But Lord, we genuinely want you to reveal to us how you want us to use our wealth. We're not going to try and deny that we have wealth. But Lord, we want to use it responsibly for your glory. Lord, help us to spend our wealth in such a way that brings you glory. Help us to spend it in a way which demonstrates our love for you. Help us to spend it in a way that demonstrates our love for others. Lord, we don't, we don't want to just be people who, oh, well, this is what I must do, this is what I must do, this is what I must not do. Lord, what we're asking for here is for you to actually do your transforming work in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, so that this would just be a natural expression of, of our daily living for you. That we would see a need and we'd just love and be overjoyed to use our wealth to meet that need in Jesus' name. Lord, we, we just open ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.